This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one- to two-week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Grubhub turned real restaurants into ghost kitchens. Are these tacos even real? Tap your screen to confirm your extra napkins and delivery address for Device and Virtue. Hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam, and we are talking about food delivery apps. Wow, you like wound that up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the last time you ordered anything from our food delivery app. I'm going to guess just never. Uh, <laughs> That's close. Do you know what we're talking about? You know, Grubhub, yes. Uber Eats. I've seen the logo. Okay, but here's my question for you, because I don't want to ask you about apps right at the top. I want to ask you about how long... Adam. How long? Say in a given week, how much time do you spend preparing food? Oh, man. Both too much and not enough. Wait, too much? Like, what do you cook? Yeah, like... I don't think I've ever seen you cook. No, I feel like food preparation is something I just don't want to spend time doing. Yeah, because you've never cooked for me. (laughs) The amount of time... I think that's true. I'm thinking about it now. I don't think you've ever cooked for me in our entire friendship. (laughs) I don't know why you're mad about this at this moment. Like... I just I, like, I, ta- like just tacos like the, or something. The number, the number of friends like, that I've made food for is probably really low. Like cold cereal? You've never made me anything, you know? <laughs> that, that's probably true. I made uh, chili. I made chili New Year's <laughs> oh, okay. 2017. Okay. Okay. That's right. That's right. Thank you. I ate it, I think. Yes. <laughs> and you did just make I me some vindicated. hot. You did just make me some hot water. I did make you hot. I, I boiled some hot water for you. Do you cook for yourself? What do you, uh, how much I time do, do you spend I on do food? occasionally cook for myself. And like I said, it's, it's both too much because I hate food preparation and it's not enough because I don't prepare enough good food for myself in a given week. What about you? How much time do you spend preparing food? So here's my thing. Here's my week? thing. Here's my thing. I like to cook. Really? Sort of like cooking. Yes. And I, I'm going to say... Do you find like a zen space I'm going to say... No, no, no. I'm not that guy. Okay. That's that what I person that sits in like dreams and like is... I know they're either on a cooking show or they're like in the clouds like just chopping stuff. I have an aunt that reads cookbooks before she goes to bed. <laughs> That's not a joke. <laughs> love you, I, Aunt Emily. <laughs> I'm, I'm the guy that actually I love cooking for like my church small group or like a big group of people. I've been yeah. doing that for years. Back when I was at campus ministry, I would cook like... We're going to have 15 people. There's five coming, and I know there's 10 more just going to show up. Yeah. You know, like, and so I would just cook huge because pots of food. food. And so I like doing that. I'm good at cooking big amounts of food, but I rarely do it anymore. I'll be honest. Like, food, I often feel really busy. I'm often not cooking for a group. It's just going to be for me. Yeah. Or maybe a roommate. And so, actually, I eat food out probably like every day like once a day at least yeah yeah wow i know that's not everybody does that sound like a lot to you i mean yeah that's that's definitely more than i eat out i'm not talking about like fancy food necessarily i'm talking about like that could include a croissant from the coffee shop you know but like all right yeah but i probably lunch or dinner a lot of days yeah i would say i eat out like three to five times a week 
So okay, it's okay. still frequent, but not as much as you. I mean, I don't know if we've we've talked about this before here, but <laughs> you know, I'm a little bit of a Yelp nerd because of it, right? Because I go on Yelp. You're a Yelp nerd. I use shut up. I. I go on Yelp and leave reviews all the time, probably because I can write, I have opinions, and I eat at a lot of restaurants. Chris, have you ever <laughs> dressed up as a Yelp review? <laughs> oh, only one time. <laughs> only one time, Adam. One time. <laughs> <laughs> one time is more than I've done. And what, what star were you as a Yelp review? Yeah, it was a one-star Yelp <laughs> review for Halloween. Thank you for asking. I carried... I had a... Red stretchy pants on. I had a Yelp logo, and I carried pictures of fuzzy food in hand of the people. <laughs> fuzzy pictures of food. Fuzzy pictures. The of food me. was not fuzzy. The well, pictures were fuzzy. Food. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> so my question for the day is: I was looking at the news and realizing how much COVID has dramatically changed how often people oh, order yeah. food on their phones. Absolutely. I looked it up. It's a hundred and fifty percent over last year. Meaning, like Grubhub, Uber. Eats, DoorDash is actually the biggest company, it turns yeah, out. Yeah. And they have 44% of the market in the US. It's just a spike on the graph. You just sort of see it growing. People have gotten the apps more. You know, you can just click. Right. Oftentimes order from a local restaurant. You get food within 30, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour or two hours, <laughs> and then you're dying of hunger. But like, it's really convenient because of COVID. Obviously, we stopped going into right, restaurants. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it is crazy up 150%. So you've really never ordered on one of these apps before? So the only food app that I have is Chipotle. (laughs) Okay. And I I have to say, like, when I've looked at my annual budget in review, the amount of money I've spent at Chipotle is astronomical. (laughs) And and I thought about, I got Chick-fil-A today, and I thought about getting the app for that because... It gives you coupons. I'm not lying. Well, because I'm a good Christian. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Here we go. <laughs> but so Ch- Chipotle is the only app I've ordered food through, but I've gone to pick it up every time. So I was really surprised to notice you posted this one link. You know, the biggest company is DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhub sort of fight for, for second and third. But the biggest, most downloaded app is actually McDonald's. Yeah, that's crazy to me. <laughs> so- <laughs> mm. I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm not going to lie. I have that installed. I do. I oh, do. yeah. Because they give you like a two for one egg McMuffin sometimes. <laughs> I did order online on my phone this week. I got ramen. I ordered from a place called E-Ramen. Oh, e- <laughs> Oh my gosh. Really it's actually, high. It's actually high level. great ramen in my neighborhood. E-Ramen. Yeah. And you don't actually think about ramen being able to order it like. Electric ramen? I mean, what is the E you know stand what? I'm for? not going to lie. I don't think they're branding, you know, don't know what's <laughs> going on there. But they put all the noodles and like egg and the fresh meat and everything in a, and the vegetables in a bowl. And then they put the, the tonkatsu broth <laughs> in a separate thing. And then you pour it in when you get it. So it actually works great. This is not the first time you've described food in detail on this podcast. Hey, we're talking about food. I'm going to describe <laughs> some food. It's tasty. But, but you know, I don't do it to deliver. Like, I don't like to. So I ordered on the phone. I'm pretty sure it went through Uber Eats. But I, I switch it to pickup all the time because I needed to get out of the house. And I walked four blocks down yeah, the place. Because you're it up. crawling up the walls. Yeah, seriously. So I like the apps, but I've only done deliver a few times. To be and honest. you have all the apps, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, they're all on sold. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's work it all out then. Let's talk about ghost kitchens. Let's talk about space, time, food itself. Chris, when I think of food delivery, obviously, I'm a child of the 90s. So I think about Pizza Hut (laughs) delivering food. And why was it only pizza? 
That like got delivered? Yeah. Why is pizza the only thing that ever got delivered? <laughs> and before like like we're America before 2015, it should be normal that like burgers are always delivered or something. But, right. But McDonald's, you always went and got. We it. love food. We love cars. Why didn't and those pizza, things go together? Pizza, yeah. Seriously. I mean, you think of not just the 90s, the 1890s. I looked up something. This is a fun fact <laughs> what? I want to share with you. Do you know that the first pizza delivery was <laughs> oh my Queen, gosh was Queen Margarita. <laughs> Where is she in queen of? Italy, in Italy. She was Italy. queen in Italy. Yeah, yeah. Queen 1899, Margarita. King Humberto. I'm oh, terrible. Oh, man, you're Don't doing a terrible me. job right now. <laughs> and the story goes that on a visit to Naples, King Humberto and Queen Margarita decided to forego their diet of fancy French cuisine one day. Instead, they opted to have pizza brought to them. <laughs> and the chefs topped the queen's favorite pizza with mozzarella, tomato, and basil, like the margarita pizza. Oh, wait, right yeah, like... Okay. And it was got named the Margarita Pizza, and that was the first pizza delivery. So goes the story. <laughs> no, I don't know how that made it to America. <laughs> like, really? But I didn't look this up. First order of pizza online, uh-huh. or even food delivery in general online, Pizza Hut, 1993. Love Pizza Hut. <laughs> they have a website, which is still online, and you'll see what it looks like. It looks Wait, like, the, the website is online? It's called P- Welcome to Pizza Net. <laughs> And it looks oh. like it says Pizza Net is a Pizza Hut's electric storefront. Oh no, it says electronic storefront. Electronic <laughs> storefront. That's so like we just have a long history with pizza. You call up and order. You go online and order. Yeah, it's really cultural. Like, there's no reason why it'd be pizza, right? Like empanadas would be more portable. I feel. I feel like, like just cardboard boxes are a pain in the butt for pizza. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like we had to make whole box shapes just for a pizza. Yeah, there's a whole industry of cardboard for pizza boxes. I watched this movie. I don't know if I told you about this a few years ago about these business guys in Mumbai, like these Indian business guys, and it's a movie called Lunchbox. And it's about this food delivery system. You watched a movie called Lunchbox? It's actually a really beautiful romantic movie. (laughs) (laughs) But it's about this food delivery system in India that's been around for 100 years. And apparently, like, if you work in an office in India, you get food delivered every day at your desk. And it's delivered by, the I kid you not, by these guys called Dabawala. That's just what it's called. Okay. And the lunchboxes aren't the way we think of a lunchbox. It's like a round cylindrical aluminum or metal and they, they have different stacks of trays you know what it looks like it looks like communion trays at church like just small oh interesting like, so it's like <laughs> okay, okay does that make sense can yeah, you picture yeah, 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 it yeah. like it's a picture like a personal one yeah <laughs> like, and yeah. they put food in there like different layers of like a salad and then some hot food and other things and everyone gets these and you order it back in the old days like your family might send it to the office but now you can just text to order these things and apparently there's this massive system of food delivery in india Beautiful movie, I recommend it. But it made me think about how cultural food is to begin with, because we think of pizza as being the food that's obviously delivered. But in India, of course, it would be these lunchboxes. Yeah. I've never thought about communion being a food delivery system, but I guess it kind oh, of is. Oh, wow. Here we go. No, we'll just keep going. That should was just get, a random aside. We should aside. get back to that. We should tag it. Yeah. Man, do you think we'll come back to communion and uh, a theology the of food uh, later, yeah, potentially? Yeah. <laughs> it's good. So here's the thing. One of the big changes, one of the effects on culture from these online delivery things is that pizza isn't the biggest thing anymore. DoorDash has a whole article. They said orders of poke, like Hawaiian raw oh, fish, yeah. is up 12 times. Orders for empanadas are up 436 times higher than five years ago. (laughs) Orders for fondue even online. Fondue? (laughs) And essentially the Americans aren't just ordering pizza and Chinese anymore. Like only in New York and Chicago, they said, is that really still standard? In D.C., Middle Eastern food is the most ordered food. 
Interesting. And so one of the effects maybe of food delivery apps is that it's broadening our exposure to other cultures and tastes. Very possible. But it could also be narrowing them because we're only ordering the food that we're familiar with and we go looking for rather than being exposed to. It does make food really a commodity because you scroll it on your phone. Mm Mm-hmm. You're looking through it like like a dating app. Yeah, Ooh, you're like, what am I going to date tonight? Yeah, <laughs> I, I've even thought like when I think about restaurants now, I ha- I go through a menu of restaurants, not through a menu of a restaurant. So when oh, I, th- I I think I think yeah, yeah, yeah. this is what I would get at Chipotle, this is what I get at Chick Fil A, this is what I get at Noodles and Company, blah blah blah. I, I think about this overarching menu rather than the the single menu at a single place. See, does this make us diversify our tastes, be more local or less local maybe with these apps? Cuz yeah. I mean, in some ways you are looking at a menu of restaurants. Sure. Maybe you're trying a restaurant you've never would have never yeah. done otherwise. It's very possible. Because it's on the same playing field. Like when you walk down a street and I see maybe the Chipotle is bright, it's glassed in, it's clean, and then you, there's a mom-pop place next to it that's mm-hmm. like, looks mm-hmm. like, I don't know, bars of a window or so I don't know, whatever. But you're like, <laughs> I ain't going there. You know, but on the app, maybe it looks the same. And maybe you try something mm-hmm. because it's on the same playing field. Yeah. I, I think uh, a little bit like what we talked about with church hopping last time is mm-hmm. it, it creates this uh dynamic where it's going to be more around your own personality so are you an adventurous eater you're probably more likely to try different things are you are you a narrow eater you're more likely to just stick with pizza and pasta this is why they have that feature on the app that just brings up the last thing you ordered a lot of times (laughs) (laughs) just ordering chicken fingers again yeah lather rinse repeat God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So, Chris, before the jump, you promised that we would talk about ghost kitchens. (laughs) Yes. And that's suddenly like, we're in a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> All right. Get like, ghost like, kitchens. H- how did we go from food delivery apps to ghost kitchens? So this is really related to the whole topic of the food delivery apps. I first heard about it two years ago. A ghost kitchen is a kitchen that's set up for someone to make food, a, a restaurant to make food that gets delivered, but they don't actually have a store, right? You have no place where you can go in There's and no order dine in person. In. The only place you can order the food is on Uber Eats or on Grubhub. So you can't even do takeout really with it. No, it has to come with you. There's no place to go get it. And it's made by restaurateurs, a cook or owner 
that wants to start something new, but they don't have enough money to start their own thing. And so yeah. they join one of these kitchens. It's a commercial kitchen. There's a story in The New Yorker about a woman that's walking up to a parking lot, and she sees like this white trailer just parked on the parking lot. And she's confused because she can smell. She goes, I could smell deep fried things coming from it, but it, like, <laughs> it wasn't there the other week. And it was placed there by a company. She walks up to it, and there's like three or four little logos on there. They look like restaurants. She's never heard of them. Wow. She winds up talking to the guy at the door, and he's like, you can't order from here, but you can go on your app and order it. And it was a ghost kitchen that was set up in California to deliver to people nearby. And it's real food. It's really made. But it's a whole new business model, for, right. especially in cities, for people to just order food off their phone. What do you think about it? Yeah, it's kind of like a food truck, but you can't go up to it. Yeah, you have to right. order on the, right. on the app. We've created these... We've created food delivery apps to deliver from existing restaurants, and now the ghost kitchens have been built on top of the food delivery apps rather than the other way around. Exactly. And by the way, let me add this. I don't think you even know this. Some of the new ghost kitchens are actually sponsored by DoorDash or Uber Eats. Uh They'll go back to small businesses using their algorithm Okay. And say, we've noticed there's a high demand yeah, in this right. area for like burgers. Right. And if you started a ghost kitchen with new gourmet burgers, you'll do better. Wow. Yeah. So the algorithm is reversing into showing like you it, could make yeah. money doing this. They're bringing sort of the market know-how to a restaurant that already exists. Totally. Which is cool. Right. During COVID, few people are wanting to dine in. There's all this more takeout, like we said. Suddenly, the kitchen is the only space that matters for a restaurant. How could that change over time the the ambiance of a restaurant? You know, <laughs> there like, is no ambiance, <laughs> th- right? Right. There's either no ambiance or the ambiance is so important as an attraction for people to come there. Like for people to really want to go into right. a restaurant, right. Right. it has to be. You know, really authentic or amazing. Or really f- fakely authentic. Yeah, right? <laughs> like there's reclaimed wood like everywhere all the time. So food delivery apps have suddenly <laughs> intensified the need for the ambiance to be either really good or non-existent. It's no longer, oh, I love the ambiance of this place. The food's okay, but I love the experience, so I'll go and have it. Now it's, I don't care about the ambiance or the environment, but the food has to taste amazing. Because I'm going to eat it in my pajamas, sitting on the couch watching Netflix. <laughs> and I sort of like this because I think maybe the food, maybe there's something wholesome or really cool about the food being focused on and not being like some afterthought frozen fries. But it also made me think about how food in general has become a brand. Food has to have a logo now. <laughs> like, because you need something to represent it when you're looking at that menu of restaurants on the app right. as you scroll through. Right, right. And this is the ultimate, like, maybe negative impact. I don't know. I like branding. So maybe it, I it, it, it's abstracted the food into a logo. It has to have a logo and colors in this sense of where, it, you know, this artistic sense to it. You were going to say the sense of where it came from. That's true. Yeah. Which I think is another huge aspect to this. <laughs> so at one time, Long before our time, food came from places, came from places. <laughs> and it was like, no. Yeah. Right. There was, there was a farm or a garden where food existed and people knew the place where their food came from. Yeah. So this, the whole idea of food delivery apps, you're saying decouples from place. It decouples it, I, food from place. Yeah. I think it has absolutely divorced the two you know food was sort of located at a restaurant but now that's completely eradicated with food delivery apps 
Wendell Berry, the you know the author and the guy that writes a lot about living the slow and simple life, yeah. writes that eating is an agricultural act. And I found this great article on a theology of food by an undergrad, and he's describing where an orange comes from. Florida, he, right? Yeah, right. And he says, <laughs> you. And he, I just quote this. He says, you may enter a grocery store, pick up an orange, peel off the sticker, and read that it's classified as Valencia. This orange was likely grown in California in a field with rows of lush trees speckled with orange bulbs. The trees were likely sprayed with pesticides and herbicides through the spring and summer months before the orange harvest, which is accomplished by immigrants who were paid well below a living wage for their work. Mm -hmm. The many oranges gathered were placed in crates and transported to a processing facility where workers took stock of the new inventory, weeded out the unsatisfactory crop, packaged orange for sales. The packages were loaded onto trucks and shipped across the country, several of which found its way to a grocery store down the street from your house. Your afternoon snack has a story. That's fantastic. An undergrad wrote that. I know. Is he pretty That's good, That's amazing. Right? Good job. Food has a past. Yeah. And it has a place. Right. And it doesn't feel like that to me. Even the grocery store, the place for me feels like Mariano's. You know what right, I'm saying? Right, right, right. the Chicago grocery store chain. Yeah. Like, that already feels like a lot of work. That's more work than the food delivery app. And he's reminding me that when I pick up the orange there, it's like layers and layers and layers back. Yeah, there's a whole supply chain that has become invisible because it's hidden behind a brand logo now. So then what's what do you think the spiritual effect of removing food from place is? Yeah, I mean, our we have a relationship to the created world. And I think there is a way in which we should be connected to it. And, and food delivery apps are adding on top of an already complex supply chain, divorcing us even further from the land. And it disconnects us from people who harvested it and the conditions in which they harvested it. And it divorces us from the ethical and justice issues around that harvesting and makes it impossible for us to know about it or, or do anything about it. I saw one headline of one article that was funny that said, forget farm to table. It's now ghost kitchen to your couch. (laughs) Part of me wants to think well, I'm questioning now the premise. Part of me wants to think that the food delivery apps have connected me like more to like restaurants in my neighborhood. Maybe not farms. I live in a city, right. so there's not farms in the city. It's connected you economically to mom and pop restaurants in your neighborhood. Yeah, more actually probably. And it ties you to them in some way, which is a, is a good thing. But I'm still really mindful of this idea of the orange coming all the way from California and me not noticing it. And there is a the divorce from place. I'll just say this to you though. Because I can hear people just going with us on you, especially, Adam. Um, oh, like, oh, this is divorcing us from place and this is terrible. And, but I always think technology, I think it has limits in what it can do to unhuman us. And what I mean is food doesn't come through the Internet through little pipes. We are going to need, like, maybe that technology exists. And Star Trek, by the way, you walk up to the replicator, Captain yeah. Picard goes, Earl Grey, tea, hot, and it just appears. And that would be a whole other ballgame. But, but there's certain things that technology has not changed, and maybe this is a slippery slope, but I have to eat. I have to sleep. We will have sex to have children. We will grow old and die. And there are things that are bodies that I sort of think will always rein in the technologies a little bit. 
Like I tend to think that the technology cannot turn us into an automaton droid because I still eat and breathe and have blood and I will need to put food in my mouth and be nourished. And so I tend to think that each generation, whether I was growing my own crops or I'm using an app, it's going to source that food very differently, but the food is going to be necessary. Yeah, I hear what you're saying like we're always tied to the food itself, but doesn't tie us to the place in any meaningful way. Yes, we're tied to the food, but the food is no longer tied to the land. You know, we hover above the land eating the food without any connection to the Ooh, land. We hover above the land. Yeah, that's good. So this reminds me of uh, a quote that I read. It's in a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend. He said, Tolkien once remarked to me that the feeling about home must have been quite different in the days when a family had fed on the produce of the same few miles of country for six generations, and that perhaps this was why they saw nymphs in the fountains and dryads in the wood. They were not mistaken, for there was, in a real sense, not metaphorical, a connection between them and the countryside. What had been earth and air and later corn and later still bread really was in them. We, of course, who live on a standardized international diet, you may have had Canadian flour, English meat, Scotch oatmeal, African oranges, and Australian wine today, are really artificial beings and have no connection, save in sentiment, with any place on earth. We are synthetic men, uprooted. The strength of the hills is not ours. Wow, that beautiful picture of us eating the food of six generations and now modernism has just destroyed us and made <laughs> us synthetic. I Have you heard of the slow food movement? I have, yeah. I had heard of it too, but I had to look up more of it. It really kind of came out in the eighties. Yeah, nineteen eighty six. This guy named Carlo Petrini, like, and it's a reaction to another Italian. Right, it was actually a reaction to a McDonald's that was going to open in front of this, like, in Italy, in front of this like famous Italian restaurant or something, and like they start Stupid reacting Americans. like, let's grow locally and things, and it's come to represent this movement about you know sustainable foods and, and right. organic and local ecosystems, and I think there's a lot of things to admire in that. However, I ran across this article called How the Slow Food Movement Drove Me to McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And in the, so this woman that writes it is the owner of multiple restaurants in New York that champions slow food. And okay. they had all these people coming through. And she goes, I had so many waiters that would say things like, sustainable free range and small batch to like everyone that walked in, you know, <laughs> and she goes, my life's work was essentially like talking about us being locally connected to our food. She goes, I loved sauce scrambled eggs, but I also really like egg McMuffins. <laughs> <laughs> and she started thinking more about what was happening. She goes, my, f the food costs like minimum 30 bucks to get dinner at my place. Mm. And she found that her employees would, run out to McDonald's <laughs> like on their breaks to the point where she, wow. <laughs> they worked at the, you know, the organic food restaurant <laughs> to the point where she made them rules. Like you have to cover your uniform when you go to McDonald's. <laughs> so McDonald's when, doesn't you bring, know. when you bring the French fries back, you got to put them in a bag that hides it, you know, <laughs> and don't let the customers see it. And so 
<laughs> so she writes this for the eater and she starts essentially says that a lot of the slow food ideals have become sort of this rich idealistic not the really the story of the working class in the city you huh. know yeah. it's cost too much you know we had someone on facebook react i think mm. a friend of ours react yesterday saying hey I love food delivery apps because I have kids right. and I'm just trying to get it done. And this is just fast and easy. Like there's right. a lot of work to do. There's a certain sort of luxuriating privilege sort of approach to this slow food thing. Yeah, I get that. Slow food is sort of the other extreme and there's a privileged aspect to it. And maybe food delivery apps have democratized food access, if you want to put it that way. But I'm not sure that food delivery apps is the right solution. I think those are two extremes, and I'm not sure that either one is great, actually. I, I wonder if there's something more in the middle that is more towards human flourishing and what God intends our relationship to food to be like. This seems like the perfect time to mention St. John Cassian, the <laughs> church father, who honestly was reading for this because he writes about fasting with monks. Okay. And because I was trying to look up what is the church, what have different church and pastors or the history said about right, food. Right. And he was saying to fast too much. He's like, don't do long, ridiculous fasts. Okay. Like, because you start losing your hunger entirely. He's like, mm. only fast a day or fast two days because then you remember your hunger. Mm. He said, the opposite side, it's just as bad as gluttony, which is overeating. Yeah. And he's like, well, then you stop noticing the food. And mm. so you stop noticing your want and the, the, what it gives you. Yeah. And so he's like, overfasting is too much and gluttony is too much. But the fasting and that sort of the back and forth teaches us our dependence and teaches us our hunger. Isn't that interesting? That yeah. sounds like a little bit of what you're saying. Yeah. Maybe both wrong reactions. So the overall question then, I like the question we sometimes ask about technologies. What do we think food delivery apps add to human flourishing or remove from human flourishing? Uh, obviously, I think uh, it's removing all kinds of things from human flourishing. <laughs> okay. Food delivery apps are exposing our already problematic relationship with food and having divorced food from the land and the importance that place has for who we are as human beings and our connection to space and time. And I think when we are divorced from that, we lose something and we don't necessarily know what. Oh, it's the old, we lose something, but I have no idea what it is. <laughs> argument. Yeah. Okay. I, the, the, the strength of the hills is not ours is the way C.S. Lewis would say it, right? I mean, what do you think? What, do you think it adds or takes away from human flourishing? Well, I mean, we've met some, some good ones, but one we haven't mentioned, one that I think adds to human flourishing. Mm-hmm is that it adds an ability for humans to be creative or create in different ways that isn't say cooking. I mean, I just okay. think I just think about history and I'm going to butcher this, but I just assume like it takes hours and hours to prepare a meal in the olden days. We're going to use that precise historical yeah. term. Yeah. <laughs> the you know? olden days. And I either do it myself and spend most of my day doing it or I have other people do it for me. That way yeah. it could be a family relationship or it could be a slave relationship, you know, which would be terrible. It could be a lot of ways to do this. Technology has made food production much easier. And mm -hmm. now we have all these layers like we were talking about and suddenly I have a food delivery app. What am I doing with that time instead? Well, when I was spending time with my nephew last week, 
he and I were sitting on the couch and I was bringing up video that I took of us riding bikes and we were editing the video together. We okay. were editing, cutting together. I mean, he's six, but he was already understanding. I was like, this is the timeline and here's like the left and right and how it moves along. Here's where we drop in music and he could see it. He was figuring it out and he's like, put in some music there or like, let's cut this. And he's learning to create, like there was this moment where I thought this is a little bit of what it means to create. Like God creates, like it's creating this art. Mm-hmm. We're creating together this sort of beautiful thing. Yeah. But we're on a laptop. We're doing digital stuff in iMovie. We are using iMovie. <laughs> and so he's not learning like how to cook a goose. You know what I'm saying? He's, <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, cooking a goose is an idiom, <laughs> so that's probably not what I'm going to cook your goose. <laughs> I mean, it's a real thing, too. You can also really cook a goose. Yeah, You've just never that. done it because you're so divorced from... <laughs> and my niece, too, she was doing the same thing. They're learning to create in other ways, and maybe different generations learn to spend their time creating, mm-hmm. but maybe not around the food because they can order that, yeah. but around other beautiful and good and true things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The convenience and the time savings. I think you could make that argument about a lot of technologies. That doesn't necessarily mean that those technologies are good. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But but, this one may be. But I hear what you're saying. I don't like the complete divorcing, but I'm also have argued that there's guardrails that I think because we need food, we're always going to do something with that. And our food delivery apps like blowing through the guardrails and off the cliff. <laughs> yeah. No, I think instead, and I'm going to go back to McLuhan for a minute, because, you know, he always talks about prior technologies becoming art. And so, you know, records become sort of unique and special now right. that we don't need them. Horse but they, and carriage becomes But they remain, they don't go away. He talks about the phenomenon right. of things not disappearing, but sort of getting an elevated status and becoming more beautiful. And let's just talk about home-cooked meals. I think home-cooked meals... Do they become a luxury good or like this thing is a special thing? I mean, I know a lot of friends that do a home cooked meal on a date, mm-hmm. go get food at the store and cook together because yeah. it's actually special because every other day of the week, we just go grab some food from a stand. Right. right. And so there's something about spending time together and doing it specially. You hand write a note now, not because you have to, you would just send an email if you had to, but if you really want to make it special. Yeah. But see, the thing is now... We cook the food on the date, and by the time it's ready to eat, you're in a bad mood. You've gotten in three arguments, and you're super hungry. And the food ends up not being that good because you have no practice. That's never happened to me. I'm not speaking from experience. And then you experience. burn it, and you use Uber Eats. And then yeah. you call Uber Eats. It's so true. So, oh, I'm sorry about your life. Thank you. Chris, as we were planning to talk about food delivery apps, I was trying to think, like, what are we going to talk about from a biblical standpoint? So I was thinking, what are some scenarios where food was delivered in the Bible? And so <laughs> so I came up with a couple, actually. Oh, gosh. So This the, is why you didn't first, want to share the, this part the, of your notes. I know. This okay. is, so the first one I thought of was when David is with his mighty men and he's like, oh man, if only I could get some water from the well by the Bethlehem gate behind enemy lines. I just, man, that water is so good. It's cold. And wow. his, his mighty men are like, dude, let's go get the water for him. And so they do. They like, <laughs> they penetrate enemy lines and they go get the water and they bring it back. And David's like, I can't, I can't accept this. You guys risked your lives. This is sacred water. And he pours it out as an offering to the Lord. 
but he he knows the place blah 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 so that's the first one the second one the second Graber, one. deep cut oh man oh my gosh i can't even i i barely remember this this the second one okay i see you're proud of it the, and you're the, smiling this yes jesus was a food delivery guy who orders the wine his mom orders the wine and he delivers. <laughs> Jesus delivers wine to the wedding. Jesus did food delivery. I'm sorry. Isn't you, that fabulous? Were you trying to drop your mic now? Because <laughs> I wish you would. Okay. Okay. Thir- third one. This is my last one. Jesus delivers food to the 5,000 and the, the boy brings his lunch, right? And like delivers the food and Jesus like, we're going to make this happen. Right? He doesn't know where the food came from necessarily, right? He, you know, gives thanks, breaks it up, and feeds 5,000 people. Can you, can you believe it? There is food delivery in the Bible. <laughs> You're amazing. I give you points. Yeah. When, <laughs> he, when he feeds the 5,000, he takes, he blesses, mm. he breaks, and he gives. Mm. And, you know, theologians have long noticed the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the way we do communion together, we take the bread, bless the bread, break it, and then and then eat it together. Right. And of course, the table is like the center of, of Christian faith. It's the central metaphor. Yeah. Eating together. Yeah. In this both ordinary way that becomes extraordinary because it represents the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And it's not a ritual that involves dance and some sort of weird thing that no one can do. It's an ordinary thing. It's bread and wine. It was the stuff of everyday life, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's something really spiritual and important about us talking about food and talking about the center of what it represents to be in communion with God. Right. I also think about the Passover meal that Jesus has before his death, which, you know, communion is based around. Mm -hmm. And he has some of his disciples go on ahead to prepare the space and then have the meal made ready, mm-hmm. whether they mm-hmm. did it or someone else did it. And, you know, we've been talking about how food and the venue, the ambiance are both like intertwined and we experience the two together and, and Jesus does the same thing. Maybe this does go back a little bit to pizza because <laughs> what... You know that back on that article of the woman that owned the fancy shop in New York and she would go sneak out to McDonald's. She winds up saying at the end of that article, what really probably mattered more was the fact that you eat together. And the pizza also, like pizza night, family pizza night, youth group pizza night. You don't yeah. usually do pizza night by yourself. Yeah. And I mean, you know, sometimes <laughs> fat me, but you know. <laughs> uh. But like there's something about the communion, the togetherness of that and the... The, the link between us being together and food is actually part of what God is teaching us in that. Yeah. And it's the sharing of the food. And I think that's why when Jesus ate with sinners, it was so offensive to the Pharisees because in mm, scripture, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. eating together indicated covenantal and social equality. Mm-hmm. And for Jesus, a rabbi to be saying, I'm going to eat with tax collectors and sinners, I recognize a covenantal and social equality with them that is scandalous. And it even goes back to Exodus where the the 70 eat with Moses and they eat in the presence of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so even, even God himself is eating with his people and establishing a covenant with them. I wouldn't say at all. I'm a, you know, kind of expert on theology of food. There's tons of books on this, yeah. but the eating together seems true. The welcoming at the table, 
even of, of everyone seems biblical. Mm-hmm. Maybe the third thing could be the giving thanks. And that's the Eucharist. The Eucharisto means mm-hmm. give thanks. And this like noticing of the food, this noticing that the food comes from God. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can do this with DoorDash sometimes. Maybe it's not exactly where the food comes from. I noticed that in you know, Revelation, we have the wedding feast of the lamb. I don't know where the food comes from that. You know, C.S. Lewis pictures it as a bunch of birds that deliver it to a table every day. Mm. If you remember that in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Interesting. And the food is just replenished and they don't know where it comes from, but there's roast duck and there's jellies and jams and things that clearly were need to be made. Yeah. But they appeared together and that the focus is on this feast together. And so if we're together, we're we're, um, enjoying communion, we're at radical equality and the giving thanks. I think we can do that with Uber Eats. Uh, you know, earlier we were talking about the way the supply chain kind of divorces us from the food, but I realized that there's another link in that supply chain that <laughs> the food doesn't just come from the land. Sure. Both yes. the food and the land come from God. Yep. And when we give thanks, we close the circle of that supply chain, right? Ooh, ooh, ooh. And when we don't give thanks, we failed to close that circle. We failed to see the entire supply chain that all, all we have comes from God. And even if food delivery apps make that opaque, we can continue to make the connection all the way back, all the way down the supply chain to the source himself who gives us the good food to give thanks for. All right, Chris. Well, that was all really serious, but it's time for Vice or Virtue. Pizza boxes. (laughs) (laughs) They're two inches tall. They're approximately 16 inches or 22 inches wide, depending on how big you get that. By the way, hot tip, always order the large, because just if you've ever done the square inch calculation. Really? Yeah. Definitely The value. Value add. And like oh. carrying it home on your lap. Pizza boxes. Car. Here's the thing. I know immediately what I think about this. <laughs> and it all comes down to a man named Cranert. Because okay. the Cranert Center for the Performing Arts at University of Illinois, okay. Urbana Champaign, has one of the top 10 most acoustically perfect halls in the world. Symphonies oh. go there to record. It was made special by an architect for the Cranerts. They were the big people that gave money. And you know what they made their money in? Corrugated cardboard. The no guy kidding. is the inventor of corrugated cardboard. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> it's what made big pieces of paper actually be able to keep their shape. It's a technology. It, it, we didn't have it for a long time. Like, I don't know, yeah, like yeah. it's wavy inside yep. if yep. you were like, and then it's flat on the Creates, bottom. Makes it and that and created yeah. like moving boxes and it created pizza boxes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it changed the world. So That's funny. I think pizza boxes go Mr. Cranert. I forgot his <laughs> first name. Uh, I used to give tours at that art center. This is why I know this. That's funny. <laughs> I, That's go Mr. Craner. Love you for the pizza boxes. Is virtue all the way. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I heard that Warren Buffett uses corrugated cardboard as a leading economic indicator. <laughs> what? That's what I've heard. Fascinating. Yeah. But it's really funny that you say this fine arts center because the fine arts center at my college, no joke. Yeah. yeah I went small, to a small, small Christian college in Minneapolis. <laughs> the fine arts center was called the Totino Fine Arts Center. As in pizza rolls, Totino pizza rolls, <laughs> which is so funny, right? So they probably used Craner pizza boxes 
for their pizza rolls. No, I think rolls. Titanos are so cheap they come in the net, oh, the man. not court again. They, they were so cheap, but apparently they they built our fine arts center at my college. Uh, so clearly, it's a it's a virtue. <laughs> Did you say it was a virtue? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I we're both that. virtue. I Terrible. Yikes. <laughs> we had enough disagreement on this episode. We're fine, I think. Well, we're done with that. Let's say we order some food. Perfect. I'm, I am kind of hungry, actually. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.